Well, good morning, everybody. Hope we're all doing pretty well. It's a great blessing that it's been cool all week, so it's cool in the sanctuary this morning. Last week was, was pretty bad. I was, uh, I was sweating profusely. Um, it is summer, though, and summer is usually a time for breaks from things. Um, a lot of us take vacations during the summer. Uh, many of us take time away from our day-to-day -day lives, our jobs, and even if those are good things that we do day in and day out, it's still good to once in a while take a break. So, like Matt had said, this month we're going to be taking a little bit of a break. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew for a while, and we're going to step away from that for just for a couple weeks and look at the book of First Peter. And we're not going to look at it the same way we've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be approaching it more topically, more thematically. We're going to come to First Peter, ask a question, and see what First Peter teaches us. And the question we're going to ask is, what is the church? Specifically, what's the identity of the church? Now, as me and Daniel and Matt sat and thought about what First Peter said about these things, perhaps not surprisingly to a lot of you, we saw it through three lenses. Um, if you've been with us for a while, you know that at Terra Nova, we try and read Scripture through three different lenses, not as an understanding of this is the only way to read Scripture, but as a system or a tool for helping us engage with the Word of God. So I'm going to take just a minute to define these lenses I'm talking about um, briefly so we're all on the, on the same footing here. First, we have the eternal lens. So that, usually denoted by the color blue, that is the, when we're reading the Bible as mystics. When we're trying to understand more about our God, who our God is and how he's revealed himself through his word and through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. The second lens is the red lens or the internal lens. That's when we read scripture as pilgrims. When we're trying to understand what the scriptures bring our lives. Sorry, Ooh, I overcompensated for the mic dropping out there. What does Scripture say about how we should live, how we should live in obedience to the word of Jesus Christ? The third lens is usually a green color, and it is the external lens. Now, that's when we read the Bible as missionaries. You know, how do we take what we know to be true about Jesus and bring that out to the world? How do we be on mission for, for Jesus in the world? Now, these are going to translate into 1 Peter in the following ways. First, we'll see that eternally, the church is chosen. Internally, the church is full of sojourners. And thirdly, the church externally should be priests. Now, as we read through these passages, I want to encourage all of us to be in Scripture together. We're going to be looking at one lens each week, the eternal this week, the internal next, and I think the week of the 15th, the external. And as we step through that scripture in a bunch of different ways, looking at it in different lenses, I want us to do that together as a church. First Peter is a small book. It's five chapters. 
If you start on Monday, read a chapter a day, you're done by Friday. And if you miss a day, you've got Saturday to catch up. So as we, can, as we step through this book, let's do it together. I think we, have, we can post, I think we've posted or will post something on our Facebook, a link to the lenses as I've just described them. If you're still warming up this morning, you didn't quite catch everything I said. We'll be able to read those lenses and as you read through scripture, share it with people. Share it with your family. Share it on social media with your friends and with your church family. That's important because we don't get to say everything that's in scripture from the stage on the Sunday morning. Nor do we, can we see everything from our own personal experience. There are things that the body of Christ, the church, can understand and see in Scripture that maybe some, another person in the body of Christ may never be able to see. So it's important that we, as a family of God, share together what we see in Scripture. So, First Peter. I think it's important, after having been in Matthew for so long, if we take a step back and we talk about First Peter for a second, kind of reorient ourselves. You know, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew, and that's primarily concerned with the work of Jesus Christ, his ministry, and his teaching. Now, at this point, we're taking a couple steps, a couple years in the future. And hopefully, as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, it's been practical. You know, te- Jesus' teaching informs us how we should live our lives. It shows us who Jesus is and what that means for us. But in terms of practicality, the letters hit in a really different way. It's the church doing life in the world on mission. It's the followers of Jesus learning to be Christians. As we look at the Gospels, we see someone like Peter, who is a, at best, wobbly Christian. He's still getting his sea legs. He has no clue what it means to be a Christian yet, let alone to lead the church. But by the time he writes First Peter, it's around 60 AD, or sometime after that. That's about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. That's 30 years of additional experience, additional learning, additional wisdom that Peter has amassed. And he's now taking that experience and writing a letter to the church and exhorting them and encouraging them. Peter calls out explicitly who he's writing to. He says in verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. On the map up there, you'll see that those provinces are circled. That's geographically what we know to be Asia Minor. It's just north of Israel and just east of Rome. So if you were to travel by land from Israel to Rome, it's kind of in the halfway point. This is, these are the churches that Peter's writing to. Like I said, it's around 60 AD, so the most severe persecution of Christians had not yet begun. That would happen under Emperor Nero around you know, 70 AD. But social persecution was still prevalent. You have people who are coming to Jesus, learning what he teaches, what he desires of us, and then obeying him. And 
out of that obedience, they're leaving their social circles. They're living contrary to the culture. And because of that, they're being mocked and they're being ridiculed and they're being slandered. Now, you may say that's not much different from where the church finds itself now, but in reality, when the church is being the church, this is always the case. There's always in some way the church is going to invoke the ire of the culture by living in obedience to Jesus. And what we see here is Peter writing into this situation, into this social suffering that these people are enduring. And he's encouraging, he's exhorting. But it's not a dissertation on any one subject, it's not an essay. If you sit down to write a letter, you probably don't plan it out extremely carefully before you write it. No, you write from the overflow of your heart. You're writing to someone you love and you just, you're saying what's on your heart. And that's what's happening here. Peter is writing from the overflow of his love for these churches. He's encouraging them and exhorting them in a hard time. But because of this, what Peter's learned and the experience he's, have, he's had, that exhortation is just saturated with truth. Usually an exhortation or an encouragement is really a return to fundamentals. It's a reminder of what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be living. And that's what comes through here. If you read through 1 Peter, you're not going to see a dissertation on the church. But it comes out of every word that he says because it's so essential. That's what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks, the identity of the church, as Peter sees it in his first letter. So before we begin, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, thank you for bringing everyone who is here here. I pray that you would use the words said and the things felt and understood to glorify yourself and make yourself known among your people. Pray you would teach us, you would guide us, you would challenge us, and you would show us your mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I heard a laugh or two when I said, before we begin, because I've been up for about, for about like 15 minutes. So <laughs> that was the introduction to the series, and I, just, I need a breath before, I actually, before we get into the teaching this morning. So I'm just going to, if you want to take a breath with me, you can. I'm just going to... First Peter, I'm going to read for us chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This, these first two sentences really capture everything Peter's trying to say throughout this letter. And we're going to kind of follow the outline he's given here for the next couple weeks. We'll see next week that as sojourners we're supposed to be in obedience and the week after that as ordained and the word here is sprinkled priests, we're supposed to be priests in the world in which we live. But this morning, I want to focus, get a laser focus on one word in this introduction, and then talk about what Peter 
thinks about that one word as he talks in his letter. And that word is elect. We're going to talk about that word and what that means to our identity as the church. The Greek word there is, it's eklektos, which you can see how the English translation elect comes right from that. That word and the word, the uh, verb form eklekomai is, it's all throughout the Old Testament. It's twice again in Peter and it's actually really common in the Gospel of Matthew. One example is Matthew 22:14, where Jesus says after the parable of the wedding feast, many are called, but few are chosen. So chosen is another common translation of the word that's rendered elect in the first verse of Peter here. And I'm going to lean into that word chosen because as good a word as elect is, it sometimes carries, I think, unnecessary theological baggage. We can get distracted by some of the theological conversations that surround that word elect. And there's truth and beauty in the word besides those theological ideas. So, chosen. What does that mean for our identity as God's people, the church? We're going to flesh this out in three ways. We're going to see that we're chosen by God through Jesus into a family. By God, through Jesus, and into a family. What does it mean to be chosen by God? Well, it's easy to say what we think that might mean for us, and we really quickly usually jump to that. But I think sometimes too quickly we jump to it, and I think it's important to take a step back before we get to what this means about us to say, what does this mean about God? What does it mean about God that he is the kind of God that chooses his people, that he is a God that chooses the ones he loves? You know, when we talk about God and his attributes and his characteristics, we do need to make some separations because there's some things, some characteristics of God that are only belonging to God, things that we can't even touch. His holiness, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience. He is above all, over all, and he controls all. But there's some parts of God, some of his attributes and his characteristics that we can lay a hold of by virtue of us being made in his image. Things like his love, his goodness, his kindness. Now, by no means are we always perfectly exemplifying these things, but commonly we can, and we can achieve to a level Showing God's kindness in our lives, showing his love and showing his mercy. Any good virtue that we as human beings can extol, that we can have, is rooted in the character of God. Anything that is good that comes out of us is because God put it there. And it's there because it was first in him. So that makes me ask a question, what about community. We're a people, the human race is drawn to community. Like I said, we don't always do it perfectly, but we are a people who long to be in community. We long to be with others. We long to be with each other. 
So you can ask the question, if that is something that is true of the human race, is that also true of God? I'd say yes, absolutely. Absolutely. God longs to be in community. He does. Specifically, he longs to be in community with us. Where do we see this in Scripture? Well, I'd say from the beginning. God creates the world, the cosmos, and the universe, and at the pinnacle of that, at the end, to crown it, he creates us. He creates humankind in his own image. Originally, the intent of that was for us to walk hand in hand with God in the garden. That's what Adam and Eve did. They walked with God in the garden. The original intent was for us to be in close community with God all the time. Yet, many of us know that that didn't necessarily last very long. Very quickly, Adam and Eve decided that there was other things that they would rather invest their time in. And there was other desires that they would ha- rather have fulfilled. There was other gods and idols that they would rather worship. And that's pretty much our story too. You know, we're consistently looking at the community that God offers us and we consistently say, well, maybe not right now, maybe later. I, I kind of want to do this right now. I want to love this thing right now. I'll love God at some other point. And God can't, he can't tolerate that. God can't tolerate being in community with someone who has put other gods, other idols, and other things before him. And that, you know, that hits us sometimes as, oh, well, God's pretty mean. He's pretty egotistical. He's pretty maniacal. But think of, let's, let's think about it for a second. Think about any relationship you are in. Your spousal relationship, your family relationships, brothers, sisters, your friends. What is something you long for in that relationship? You long to be known for who you are. You long for someone to understand the things that you love, the things that you don't like, the things you've gone through, the things you've struggled through. One of my, fav- my wife's favorite spoken word poems has this quote, that to be known is to be loved, and to be loved is to be known. I think that's extremely true. And if we have that standard in our relationships that we want to be known and understood and loved for who we are, why do we feel it necessary to call God mean and maniacal when he wants the same thing? Like we said, God has character traits that are different from our own. His holiness He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's ever-present. These are things that we don't have and can't have. And yet we want to treat God like we can have those things or that, like he doesn't have those things. To be in community with God is to rightly understand who he is. And that, if you rightly understand who he is, the only response is worship. 
because he is so much above us, so much different. Yet we sometimes are unable to choose that. It's part of us, the part that isn't made, the part that has been broken, the part that has been injured, the part has, that has been wretched out of its godly context would have us search for other gods, would have us follow other things. And that's where we stand. We stand here searching for other things, for other gods, and at the same time shunning and separating ourselves from the God who would have community with us. So what does God do with that? He longs to be in community. He longs to choose us into his family. What does he do? In 1 Peter chapter 1, chapter, uh, verse 3, it says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice how that statement starts with worship, directed in the right direction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it goes on to say that we have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, what does that mean? I think Paul does an amazing job of expanding this ex exact idea in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse, make sure my notes are in the right order here, sorry. Chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, right worship. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Through Jesus Christ we're forgiven for our idolatry. We're forgiven for all of our sins. See, Jesus took the punishment for them and this is the gospel that God wanting a relationship with us even when our sins had made a separation between us and him pursued us relentlessly with his love making a way for our wrongs to be righted so that the relationship could be restored. And there's a part of this I think that we glance over or we commonly miss. I know until recently I wasn't even aware that I did this. The Father sent Jesus to do exactly this. He sent Jesus to die 
for us so that he could restore that relationship and fulfill it and direct our glory to the correct, direct our worship to the correct place. If we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, it says this, that he was known, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. A couple weeks ago, well, probably two months ago at this point, me and my wife were following a Bible study from uh, the Daily Grace Co. And it was going through the book of Ephesians. We were in the, you know, the same passage I just read a couple minutes ago. And one of the questions in that study was, how does it make you feel that you're chosen by God? How does it make you feel that you're chosen by God? My initial response was, well, it doesn't matter. Because I wasn't chosen, Jesus was chosen, and it's only by virtue of his righteousness that I have any skin in the game at all. And I wrestled with that for a while. I think that entire day after we had read that, I wrestled with that. And I realized that's a misunderstanding of the gospel. And whether or not we articulate this, I think often we believe it. That the Father hated us, but Jesus loved us. So... Because of Jesus, the Father tolerates us. But that's not what the gospel is, and that's not what Scripture says. What Scripture says is that the Father loved you. In the midst of you trying to scrape together your identity out of broken things, he chose you knowing exactly who you were going to be. And he made a way for you by sending his son to die in your place just so he could adopt you as his own. It's the Father's plan and the Father's will to love us. He's loved us from the foundation of the world and he's chosen us from the foundation of the world. Adoption, that, think about that word for a second. It implies voluntarily entering into one of the most intimate relationships a human being can enter into. A relationship of security, love, and sacrifice. And God, the creator of the universe, is saying voluntarily I will enter into that relationship. Voluntarily I've sacrificed myself for you because I love you. And I want to be in relationship with you. If we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16, it says this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I need to ask this morning, have you been adopted? Do you feel the Spirit testifying to your spirit that you are 
adopted by God? Have you accepted his invitation to be part of his family? Have you accepted his invitation to enter into his love? If you haven't this morning and you don't feel the spirit testifying to your spirit that that is the case, talk with some of us, talk with one of us. Anyone here would be more than glad to talk to you about that. Adoption. Kind of necessitates more than just a two-person relationship, no? You're adopted by a father, but you're also then adopted into a family. And that family is full of brothers and sisters. When God adopts us and chooses us, he doesn't just choose us and then put us in our little Christian circle where we can be Christians now. No, he elects us into a family and says, this is where you belong now. This is your family. Historically, our culture in the West is extremely individualistic. It's just how it is. And when we read something in First Peter and any of the New Testament letters or even in the Gospels when Jesus says this, he calls these people brothers and sisters. We're not taken aback by that. It's, seems, it seems super spiritual, sure, but that's about as far as we go. But this was a ridiculous claim to make at that time. If you understand that your primary identity was tied up in your familial bond and that once you had grown older and your mother and your father had passed away, that you were primarily identified not by your marriage relationship, but by your brothers and your sisters. That from those familial ties remained where you had your identity and your status from in the culture that these letters were written to. So for Jesus and Paul and Peter to say something like, the church is full of your brothers and sisters? That's a marvelous claim by the cultural standards of the day. Like I said, our culture is generally individualistic. We like to be able to choose our community, who we do life with based off of our interests, our self-made identities. This was especially true during something like COVID when all we had was internet groups and social media outlets and news organizations, things that we could go to to make us feel like we belong with a group of people. And we gravitate to the things that we naturally identify with, the things that we think enforce or reaffirm some part of our self-made identity. And that's not what the church is about. The church doesn't do that. The church flips that entire system on its head and it says, your identity is in Christ. The church isn't a community that conforms to our self-constructed identity. It's a community that reveals your true identity in Christ. 
You're chosen into a family. And these brothers and sisters in your church family are going to encourage you, challenge you, and exhort you to be more like Jesus. For a while, there was a passage in the Gospel of John that this made no sense to me. Jesus says something along the lines of, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, well, I'm going, I'm going to be going. I'm going to die, ascend, and then I'm going to not be here anymore. But don't worry, I'm going to send my spirit. And then he says, that will be better for you. And that (laughs) doesn't make any sense, right? Like, How is it not better that Jesus is here with me, teaching me, showing me, and being with me like he was with his disciples? How is that not better? I think what Jesus was saying there was this, that when he sends his spirit to fill the hearts of his people and make them more like him in every one of his children, you see Jesus. Not completely. Because we all have work to do. But how we see Jesus in the church is through the scriptures, but also through one another. In our ministry to one another. And our love to each other. Christian community, doing life with your brothers and sisters is an essential fruit of the Christian life. Sure, our justification, our our one-way ticket into heaven, is faith alone. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is what your salvation is based off of, sure. But we also learn that faith works itself out through love, and the faith that justifies you bears fruit. One of those fruits is community. Being with and loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. The community of believers is essential. If we look back at 1 Peter, it says this. In 2.5, It says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Well, you can't make a house out of one stone. Nor are you supposed to try. If we're going to fulfill our mission on this earth as the church, we need to be in community with each other. Likewise, listen to all of the plural identifiers that Peter uses in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. 
A main part of our being chosen is being chosen into the community of God. If we flip back to Romans, and we see in chapter 12, verses 3 through 5, Paul explains this really well. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So there's two things there. The church as the body of Christ. We can't image Christ together. We, we can't image Christ alone. We need to be together to do that. We need to come together, each with our gifts, our experiences, and our understandings to bring the fullest understanding of Christ to each other and to the world. But Paul goes a step further in that passage. If you read again verse 5, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. What's Paul saying there? It's not as though only we're just puzzle pieces to put together a picture of Christ. That is certainly true. But Paul's also saying that who you are, your identity, is incomplete without other believers. Who you are called to be as a follower of Jesus Christ is incomplete without the ministry of your fellow brothers and sisters. That's hard. Relationships are hard. They're the hardest thing we do, by far. They also bring the most joy into our lives. And like any hard thing, it requires practice. So as we edge towards a close today, I want to give us two ways we can practice practice our community with each other. The first is communion, and the second is worship. Communion is replaying the sacrifice that brought all of us together in the first place. When we take the body and we take the blood, we take a cup that should have been filled to the brim with wrath, but is instead because of Jesus filled with grace. We've been forgiven for our sins and thus can enter into community. And there is undoubtedly an individual aspect there. Your sins are between you and God. If you've sinned against others, you should square those with those people and repent and ask for forgiveness from them. But as David says, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. There's an individual aspect there, and that's why when we enter into a time of communion, we sit and we encourage repentance, confession, and introspection. Because Paul says that if you come to the Lord's table without doing that work, it's dangerous because you are he says, re-crucifying Christ, essentially. 
So there's an individual aspect there, but there's also a communal aspect to communion. It's, com it's obvious by the words we use to talk about communion. One of them, the one of the more common ones in other traditions is Eucharist. It's a Greek word. It means thanksgiving. Communion is a Latin word that means to share in together. So if we take the most common words about communion, it means to share in thanksgiving together. So while there is undoubtedly an individual component to our confession and our repentance, there's also a communal component where we come together and we thank God for his grace to us. And we do that as a family. And that's why I love so much how we do communion at Terra. After you sit and you get your heart right with God, you come forward and you take the bread and you take the wine or juice from a brother or a sister. You've just been in a place of confession and repentance and you come to the front and receive the elements from someone who you know, someone who's part of your family. And they essentially say to you, hey, we're together in this. Whatever you just confessed, whatever you just repented, I don't need to know it, but all I know is I'm here with you in it. We're a family. And we're going to do that together. I also love that we are in a time of worship in the midst of communion. Because oftentimes it's hard to turn to worship after repentance. On, on my notes here, I have the name of a brother who uh, many of you probably will piece together who I'm talking about. I didn't want to name him by name. But every Sunday, he would sit in the front pew, in the front chair. And no matter what, he would raise his hands and his voice in the loudest praise to our God. And I'll tell you what, some days I really needed that. Because it is hard when you're in a place of brokenness, of guilt, and of shame to turn and then place your entire identity and all of your worship in God. That's a hard thing to do. Don't be mistaken. That's why in worship we need to come alongside one another. Because on any given Sunday, some of us can probably see God's face a little clearer than the others. Some of us come into these pews and we are defeated. We're, de we're in despair. And it is then the body of Christ in worship together that points those people to the throne of grace. It's our, it's our corporate worship that reminds us through our brothers and sisters, look at our God. Look what he's done. Remember, remember. Worship. We're going to enter into a time of communion and worship now. We'll take the body and the blood after a time of confession and repentance. We'll come to the table and take 
these elements knowing that they are symbolic of a great truth that we have been saved, cleaned, washed, and justified in the eyes of God, and that God has reached down and plucked us out to be in community with him. And then we will go and we will sit back in our pews and we will sing. And when you sing, sing for God. Sing for yourself and your relationship with him, but don't just sing for yourself. Sing for your brother and sing for your sister. They need to see God too and they might be having a pretty hard time. Let's pray together. Father God, we hardly understand the bounty and the beauty that you have given to us. Your grace is so wide and so ever-reaching that we really don't have the ability to wipe, to wrap our minds around it, but Lord, I pray you work in each one's heart this morning to rekindle and remind them of the spirit of adoption that you have given them. You remind them that they are justified through your son. And that in that, they're not alone, that they have friends and family and a father. We thank you for your grace and for your love this morning. In Jesus' name.